Wally, and welcome to the Saxophone Academy Podcast. I'm Dr. Wally Wallace, and on this episode, I chat with my amazing co-host, Dr. Susan Banger, about acquired tastes in music. We talk about Bach, improvisation, and answer some of your questions. And if you have a question for the podcast, feel free to write us, wally at thesaxophoneacademy.com. Hope you enjoy the episode. In this pandemic. <laughs> okay, Wally, how's so it going? <laughs> really good. It's rainy here in Greensboro. It's, it's muddy yeah. and gross. Makes me feel sleepy. Well, thanks. I'm so glad you came over to the studio <laughs> and then immediately told me you feel sleepy. Now, Sue, you've been, you've got a gig coming up. Yeah, I have a little gig. I'm going to play a couple of pieces at the Duke Chapel on Sunday. The Duke in Durham? Yeah, Duke University over there in Durham. It's a beautiful space. I love to play there. Any chance I get to play in there. I just love to play in that acoustic. It sounds, it's I've, I've seen videos of you playing in there and yeah. it does. It looks like a it's, beautiful space. It's gorgeous. So what are you, what are you playing? I am going to play a good old chestnut called the aria by Eugene Boza. The Boza aria. I'm going to play that as an it. offertory. And then I'm going to play a piece by Ben Johnston that I transcribed for alto saxophone. It was originally for clarinet it's called ponder nothing. And it's a theme and variations on an old hymn. So it's, it's perfect. I'm going to play that between the, you know, Old Testament and New Testament lessons. Right. Just going to do an right. excerpt of it because the whole piece is 11 minutes. I can't do that. But anyway, so while I've been practicing for that, I've been practicing Jenny Watson's new piece because it's on my music stand. Now, that will segue nicely into a question slash topic for discussion. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you've been working on Jenny Watson's piece, our yeah. new Sacramento Academy Commission. For I say, we're off to a good start there. It's a beautiful oh, piece. It's be- I, a wow. lot of people have gotten some very cool feedback on it already. Yeah. Um, so you've been working on it. Tell us about this piece. And this is available free for everyone to download. Um, we're yeah. commissioning this work for everyone. Yeah, go uh, get Composed it. by UK-based composer Ginny Watson. So tell us about the piece, Sue. I think it's great. I mean, your, your advanced high school players are going to be able to play it. It's mm-hmm. got this lovely slow movement. <clears throat> I would sing it, but I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I'll play it sometime soon. Now, though. strangely enough, I hear you do sing. <laughs> I sing in a choir, yeah. I know, because I heard from my recording engineer. I just had a rehearsal oh, at the recording studio. Ben blows in, yeah. Ben blows in, and yeah. my, one of my dearest friends, the recording engineer, said, oh, yeah, I met Sue Fancher. And I was like, yeah. oh, what, was she, what did I you was... play? And he's like, oh, she was singing. I was like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, a friend of mine, Chris Thompson, is doing a piece where he's taking the, the humming chorus from Puccini, uh-huh. and he's got some percussion he's putting underneath it, and then he, I think he's going to rap over it or something like that, but he was looking for some vocalists. Chris is awesome. He is okay. awesome. He's a wonderful guy. He's so looking you, for some vocalists to so do you the, the sing, but you're not yeah. going to sing the Jenny Watson. So talk to us about the, the piece. What have you discovered? Da from- da there I sang the opening line. I don't know if that's in the right key. I don't have perfect pitch. Someone will let us know. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah it's, and then it's got, you know, a little skippier second movement to it. It's lovely. Yeah. It's just based how- on that simple melody, and she just does really beautiful and things with it. She really develops it beautifully. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And very there's, organic. There's nothing in this for the sake of being saxophony, as my wife would say. No. And the tempi, you know, you it's like all tempi. You know, I have so many students who put the metronome on at the marked tempo, and they're like, I've got to play it at this tempo. You could go at the marked tempos. They're fine. You could go a little slower if you want. You could go a little faster if you want. I mean, it's just really a lovely piece. It's going to work great. at. So the, the second movement that's a little faster mm-hmm. at the marked tempo, you know, it moves. It Plenty of... Plenty of challenge, yeah. Yeah, and so I just wanted to tell any players out there like, oh no, I can't play it because it's, you know, it's too fast. It's First of all, it's not that fast. Yeah. But second of all, you could play it slower and the music is still going to work and Jenny's still going to be happy. Yeah, she's she's incredibly kind and nice. Yeah. Um, on our Zoom conferences when we were talking about this, she just smiled and nodded a lot at me rather than trying to virtually oh. slap me. Um, <laughs> my Americanism is, is tough to deal with for British people. <laughs> Um, incredibly kind, and I have no. I could just picture her saying, hey, "Slow it down." You know, it's it's yeah. music. Well, and don't you think it's great that everybody plays things their own way? We don't have like fifty recordings that sound exactly the same. I love it when people do things a little different. I do, and if I don't want to check key signatures, that's my prerogative. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. so maybe we'll draw the line there. So Wally. <laughs> that is a great place for is um, in the first movement almost. It's not intended to stand alone, but it's a beautiful thing that you could just yeah. work on that if you're not ready for the second movement. Oh, yeah. So go download it. Um, head to our website. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's it's free for everyone. We you, we uh, commission this for everyone. So yeah. go enjoy it. Go get it. <laughs> you know, that first movement, even though she didn't intend it to stand alone, it certainly could. Oh, yeah. And if I hadn't already chosen the piece to play on Sunday at Duke Chapel, I would have played that first movement in between the lessons instead of the Johnston, because oh. it's just so beautiful. Next time I will. 
Oh, I think yeah. we're. Go- I think she's going to get a lot of performances at this point. Oh, I would she think just, so. Yeah, she knocked it out of the park. Yep. So speaking of learning classical music and picking classical pieces, which ah. w- you got in big trouble last time for talking. I'm kidding. Oh no, <laughs> I'm. I'm kidding. Um, uh, Johan. Oh man, how do you pronounce this name? Johan. De- Johan, I know who you Johan, are. Johan. Johan. Johan de Wieser. De Wieser. That's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, I was real quiet when I Johann said it, right? So he you has say a, it quietly, then it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Johan, who I know, one of my students, has a question. Um, as a teenager, I played classical guitar and really loved playing those beautiful melodies. I wonder if there's any benefic- uh, any benefit in practicing some classical pieces for jazz students. And if so, any suggestions for a beginner saxophonist? I oh, love geez, that question. Yeah. First of all, thank you for being open-minded and looking at the other side of the aisle. Yes. Um, yeah. So... We obviously both feel strongly about studying classical music. What are the benefits, Sue, of for a jazz player? What can we gain as, as jazz peoples? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of benefit to classical players studying jazz too. Let me just preface with that. Oh, so I'm it's gonna, not like you know. <laughs> we've talked about that in a previous yes, podcast. I hope yes. so, so. I mean, yeah. I absolutely think in the 21st century, every saxophonist should, especially if you're going to go into teaching. Yeah. You need to have a working, you're like, well, I'm a concert saxophonist. Yeah. But it's I, good for your playing, too. Great, I mean, it really made me a better classical player to go study jazz. Right. So anyway, so let's see, benefits for a jazz player of studying classical music. Well, evenness of technique, maybe um, being able to play a musical line, even if it's not one that you're making up. So the Bolsa Aria would be a great piece to practice that is as a, great a jazz player. Piece. And it's <laughs> devilishly hard to play well. It is. I mean, it it's something we indeed. throw at our high school students and like, yeah. here, play this. And like, once they kind of slog through the key signature and the accidentals, <laughs> it's not technically challenging, but making it music, musical yeah. and phrasing and into, oh, intonation. Intonation and then beautiful vibrato. Mm-hmm. You know, that's usually the first piece we give kids when they're just learning vibrato. And that's why that piece is so badly performed because we're, you know, you're struggling to just play a decent vibrato and you have to play these long phrases. That's and, a good and starting count place. And eighth notes. Yeah. <laughs> I like it for jazz people learning some of these classical melodies. Um, and the, the Bozza Aria is a great place to start because in jazz, so commonly, we kind of over-ornament beautiful melodies. Mm. Um, when I hear a lot of, especially beginning jazz players start to play, you know, whatever, beautiful standard, yeah. misty, uh, all the things you are. They want to add in gazoodles of noodles and sometimes, oh, yeah. the, and then it becomes rather formulaic and we lose that beautiful melody. And I, yeah. and I always feel like as, as a someone who loves jazz in the Great American Songbook, how many people have never really just heard the melody to all the things you are, and the first time they hear it, they see you're someone where they throw in 13,000 noodly notes. Yeah. And so I think studying classical music, we can see just how an unadorned melody, yeah. not unadorned, but you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. Unembellished, just a simple, simple phrase. Right. Yeah. And, and working on it, I think it can be beneficial. Yeah, and being able to play it so it works. Without without hiding behind a lot of extra notes. Right. And mm. even if we add the extra notes, we start to learn that the phrase is not two or four bars. It can stretch eight yeah. or 16. And so then we start to hear fra- longer phrases rather than uh, yeah. a lot of times when we listen to jazz players, the uninitiated, we think in two bar phrases, little short bursts, short oh, sure. bursts. But there's, if you listen to Stan Getz, there's a macro line beneath it, a longer mm. phrase structure. And classical music is just, it's not an easy way, but it's a way to really see that written out right. Right in front of your eyes, yeah. which I love. Yeah. What's another benefit? Well, <laughs> you can say it. No, you're in trouble. But in, Tuning. <laughs> in some respects, um, idiosyncrasies of the genre. Um, jazz players, you know, some of my favorite players played a little out of tune in certain yeah. things, and it's part of the art form. Some actually argue it's a type of folk music. I'm not sure I 100% buy that. Yeah. But then again, I don't fully know the definition is by the musicologist's <laughs> terms. But yeah, uh, intonation, working yeah. on. And also, if you're playing with jazz harmony, it can be harder to hear whether or not you're in tune because it's so complex if you're a beginner. Um, just the inversions and the complex harmonies. Whereas in classical music, it's pretty easy to tell if you are in tune or not because you're not yeah. tuning to a flat 13. You're tuning to a lot of times a triad yeah. when you're playing some yeah. you know, other music. So I think working on intonation is a great thing. I think so. One time when I was in jazz band at, at Northwestern, I remember Don Owens was the director and he, he stopped the band and he said, Sue Fancher, 
I want you to play with the same kind of pitch integrity that you would do for Fred Hemke in the classical studio. Good for him. So exactly that, because, you know, I was just kind of letting it not, I wasn't paying attention to the tuning. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't sound good in classical music to play out of tune. And it doesn't sound good in jazz either, to be honest, <laughs> unless you're doing some kind of intentional right. tension away from the tuning. But if you're just flat out playing out of tune, it doesn't sound good. There's some <laughs> pretty amazing legendary albums where the intonation is a little wonky, and that's part of it. Um, and it probably bothers me when it, I listen to it as with my classical sensitivities, right? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm used to it, and I, we have talked about recordings. We're not going to yeah. name names. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Wally, the intonation is so bad, and I didn't hear it. Yeah, and I don't think I have bad intonation. No, Watch you, it, Sue. <laughs> don't you dare I'm bite my tongue. No, I don't no have, you don't. I don't have bad intonation, don't. but I didn't notice because in that art form, it's part yeah. of the idiosyncrasy, it's part of the genre. Understood. Not intentionally yeah. playing out of tune, but. Um, then there's plenty of times where you do want to play in tune when yeah. you're like that local pops concert where yeah. you know you, you don't want to have Jackie McLean's <laughs> intonation in the upper register if you're trying to match a bassoonist. Right. Um, you're gonna get some dirty looks. So working in classical music, I'm not saying classical musicians have better intonation. No, I'm not God, saying that no. At all. <laughs> Me either. No, we've oh, no. some of them. <laughs> I'm gonna be quiet. You better but, stop right there. Yeah, there are jazz musicians with incredible intonation exactly. and, and classical music and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Um intonation's but a lifetime I find battle. It, I find um, playing the melody when, you, especially when you're just dealing with a bass player, and some of the backing tracks we play in jazz, the bass is horribly out of tune. Oh, that's interesting. I, even my band in a box, um, when I like program the backing tracks that I use for my students when yeah. I do my exercises, the bass is wonky out of tune, <laughs> and I'm thinking like it's making me sound bad, you know, wrong. <laughs> right. So, but in classical music, it's I think it's easier to work on intonation. Maybe uh, yeah. if you're not so used to hearing how you fit in with those harmonies. Right. Um, with certain jazz voices. So there's a lot of benefits. Yeah. You know, for me, the biggest benefit of, of a jazz musician studying classical is, you know what the jazz world doesn't have that the classical world has that we should all want more of our lives? What's that? Bach. Ah. Uh. And I just, I think Bach is, let me put my, my fan t-shirt. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Wait. Bach, oh, it looks Bach good. to the kitchen t-shirt now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I adore Bach, as so many musicians do. Yeah. Um, and... I think there's so much to be learned from playing Bach in even making counterpoint within a solo line. Oh yeah. Um, there's so many lessons. I mean, we won't, we can't go on here, but just in the jazz world, there's, we don't have Bach, but well, maybe we just all have to play Bach. I've talked about that too. I totally. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Johan, yeah. if nothing else, I my go to, um, there's places you can download Bach arrangements for free. Um, oh yeah. And, and you check can out IMSLB and yeah. get, get the flute partitas. Uh, exactly. Flute party to get the CPE Bach Sonata in A minor. It's just gorgeous. That's a the that's Bach Sun. That's a different Bach. <laughs> it's still Bach. But though. let's not get boxed in to just. Huh. I'll oh, go oh, wait geez. in the car. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, lots of reasons to study classical music, Johan. And I think Bach intonation. Um, oh, also, yeah. if you're learning advanced bebop, the way the inflection and the slight swing lilting can be difficult to learn. Very fast, clean technique. Um, studying classical music is a way to take out those idiosyncrasies and learn technique just kind of more straight on. Yeah. Not that we don't play technique musically in the classical world, but right. in a sense, playing a bop line with those inflections is a lot harder than just learning 16th note runs and like glazing off well, or something. Well, and learning to play with normal tone in the low register as opposed oh, yeah. to subtone. subtone. That's one that's thing another. I've had to work really hard on students who've come to study classical music who started with jazz. You yeah. have to work really hard to to get a more pure sound in the low register. It's great to be able to do that subtone. Yeah. Don't forget how to do that because it's awesome. But it's nice also to be able to just play just a normal, focused, pure sound down there because the tuning is a little bit different. Yeah, and if you've heard the <laughs> chance to play in um, like the symphony with your local symphony, oh like a gosh. pops concert, you'll have to do that. Yeah, isn't um, it terrible to get composers right way down there? Let's enter on a low B at piano after the saxophone has been sitting uh, there for a half hour. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. Probably because it was supposed to be doubled on another oh, yeah. <laughs> It was intended for the clarinetist to grab a saxophone yeah, and walk right, through it. Exactly. That's a great question. Well, speaking of um, the benefit of, of studying classical and jazz, I, was a, I, I am a jazz player, but I also used to play classical music. I still do, but I used to, too. Um, <laughs> and I just went into the um, the studio to, for my first rehearsal after a long COVID break. Congratulations. Well, thanks. And so my fun. classical training didn't help me. I don't have a good segue for this. <laughs> but when I was in the studio, you know what I found? What'd you find? My saxophone fit in the case so beautifully well. My aftermarket case, my BAM case, my normal my normal end cap didn't work to keep it snug. You know what kept it snug, Sue? Uh-oh. Yes. The, the key leaves gap gap. The gap gap. A variable length 
end cap for your saxophone that fits any aftermarket case. It screws up, it screws down. It has beautiful machined metal with a satiny gold finish. They have silver, they have key leaves green. That's what I'm calling that color green. I mean, Sherman Williams may not agree, but I don't care. And I so think they should call it that. <laughs> I had my first rehearsal with Lime Human Beings, and uh, I pumped them all full of vaccine, whether they wanted it or not. <laughs> and we met in the recording studio, and I opened my case, and there was my gap cap in this beautiful satin gold, yep. staring back at me, keeping my, my, my horn snug and secure. And I loved it, and it brought a smile to my face, and my G-sharp didn't stick. And you know what? What? I, we, we were working on Pills and Ghosts, the Pac-Man theme in a Bebop style, <laughs> and the bridge... Sue, there's a lot of G-sharps. Oh, yeah. You can't have that key sticking. That may be E-flats or A-flats. I, I don't know. I'm not good with theory. But my G-sharp just popped yep. right. There was no noise. That noise was a sound effect. To, but cool. there was no noise because there was no sticking. Right. Because my key leaves. Key props were also in my case. Awesome. And looking outside, it, it's damp. It's humid. It's rainy. It's gross here. Yeah. And my keys aren't sticky. Yeah. Thanks to key leaves. Yeah, key and leaves. key leaves... Uh, callback uh, from earlier in the episode is sponsoring this commissioning project and we can thank them for this new work we have yeah. from Jenny Watson. Yay. So huge thank to our sponsor. Uh, thanks to our sponsor Key Leaves and Rulon Brown, the inventor of these incredible products for keeping our pads dry and not sticky, keeping my horn safe in its case and for commissioning enveloped by Jenny yes. Watson. This is very exciting. And you gave me one last time in the beautiful green, Key Leaves green and it is in my Alto case and it fits perfectly. Yep. Great. We've got another question. Yes. Pat Imblen. Um, what level of improvisation is commonly used in jazz solos? Wally told us that he has an outline in mind when he begins, if I'm thinking clearly. Uh, <laughs> I play piano in a blues band and our guitarist, fantastic, solos are identical note by note every time until he decides to change them. How much scripting normally goes on in great solos? Oh, geez. What do you think, Sue? I don't know. I think that... I. I think this is out of my league, but I'll take a stab <laughs> at it. I mean, I think that that when people practice improvising, they they work up a bag of like tricks or uh, tricks are the tricks? wrong word. Is that what we're yeah, doing? They're just doing. Tricks, we are not Molly. conjurers of cheap <laughs> tricks, Sue. Yes, we are. No, yeah. <laughs> that there are certain um, melodies or phrases or tunes or ways to get through the changes that a person develops and they can draw on that when they're improvising. But I think when we're improvising, we're always trying to find something that's sort of spontaneous and in the moment too, but all that practice does come to bear. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I, and I know there's different schools of thought on this. I've talked to jazz players who are like, oh, if you're playing stuff you've already played, that's not cool. And other people are like, no, it's okay if you play stuff that you've played before. Oh, yeah. So I don't want to step in that. <laughs> I'll step in it. Okay, go for it, Wally. <laughs> How's that for a good I have I stake my reputation <laughs> upon the clip. No. Um, if you listen to, and I've heard, um, I've had a couple mentors that have real mixed feelings about um, albums like Verve Greatest Of released after the, the artist has passed and they released oh, yeah. outtakes. And I remember seeing one with Liner Oats and, you know, like where this is one where Charlie Peck Parker didn't make it through the phrase and there was, you know, and it's like it, if the Jeez. artist didn't want that to be released, I Why don't... Why are you releasing it? I don't That's love so that. uncool, yeah. But beyond that, there's some that are great where you can, you know, find five outtakes... And some are approved by the artist as well. Well, that's interesting. So um, you can compare so you can what compare. they did. Compare in the takes. jazz world. Oh, they get real nerdy. Oh, they get like, oh, if you listen to the the Verve re-release volume two of the Cannibal Outtakes <laughs> from the stuff, and they get real nerdy about it and comparing it. And I don't, I don't know. It's all good, love. It's, it's fine. all good, Molly. <laughs> but yeah, I, jazz has a one-upsmanship in the culture that drives me nuts. Like, uh, well, that's pretty good. But have you heard this one? Oh god. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, most fields probably have probably that going on. Sadly. But, um. So like, you know, some of the major li labels have made a lot of. I don't know a lot of money, but have re-released a lot of outtakes and, you know, uh, variation. What do you call it? What are the word? What is, me no find word. <laughs> Talk hard. Um, alternate takes. <laughs> alternate takes. Good grief. Doctorate, no oh work now. No. So the alternate takes, and up. you can hear, and so um, that's a great question. And what you hear is that a lot of times the solos will start very similarly, yeah. sometimes identically. Uh, sometimes you will hear phrases identical later in the solo. So it's like yeah. that we have some language, some phrases. Sure, that seems okay to me. Absolutely, and here's the I way I think about it. I usually figure out how I'm going to start ahead of time because I'm a little nervous about how do I start, and then I just oh, yeah. go off in any direction that occurs to me at the moment. But I, I have a yeah. couple of um, start ideas of yeah. where I might want to go. 
And then it has it. So it's like a conversation. If I were to see Sue on the street, I would say, stop following me. No. Uh, <laughs> I would say, Sue, how's it going? Like, well, there's only a handful of opening phrases we're going to use conversationally. Right. What's up? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Sue would never say that to me. No, like, what's up, dog? What's yeah, up, that's, dog? That's, that's how Sue always addresses me. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, there's a handful of greetings, and then the conversation takes a natural turn from yeah. there. And I think it's absolutely fine, especially, I will say, if you're in a stressful <clears throat> situation, like the big band, da 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 bow, and then it's your solo and everyone's looking at Woo. you. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Having an idea, an opening phrase. Like I give talks where I don't script everything, but I might very well. I missed a button on my shirt. Uh, I'm not Wally. a smart man. Today. Oh my God, Life is hard, Sue. I know. Um, I will have ideas um, when I give public, you know, talks about career development or stuff that I talk quite, you know, yeah. not terribly frequently, but it used to do quite a bit. But I would still have some opening lines and outlines, even though I could riff on for two or three hours without shutting right. up. Um, so I think having some ideas is completely normal. And oh, if you yeah. listen to the alternate alternate takes, that's what I was looking for, uh, Pat. Yeah. Um, you'll hear a lot of repeated things. And even the the master takes solos of like Parker. You can hear similar phrases oh, goodness. in different solos. And that's great. That's their language. That's their it's not that like they a catch developed phrase. that yeah. they they figured out through hours and hours yeah. and hours of practice. So yeah. I wouldn't, you know, scripting may be a strong word, but I totally know what you mean, Pat. And I think that's a great question. And some players quite a lot. And they and it's no less artful to work out, you know, the the scaffolding of a great solo yeah. and see where it goes from there. Um, and it's scary. Improvising is scary. And so some people are less comfortable, you know, going off their plan. If you know oh, what sure. I mean. You know, so you know, you gotta be gentle with somebody who's having a hard time kind of veering away from something they've worked out and they know doesn't sound bad. Now you I will can say gently yeah. encourage them though to, you know, try some other licks because yeah, or like build your language. Um, yeah, so when I first yes, met my mentor, it. our friend Chad Eby, I was classical nerd that could fake my way a little bit in jazz. And so I had like I don't know, a half dozen two five matters that sure. I had memorized in 12 keys. That's and pretty good. So we get a lesson <laughs> and I would play in about the second chorus. He'd be like, yeah, heard that one. You know, I keep playing. Heard that one, Wally. Yep, there's that one again. And meaning like, you know. You need some more. You need to build your language or start, yeah. improv- you know, use those as a launching point. Yeah. For your improvisation. Start yeah. them. And so one of the, here's an exercise. That's great. To do this, Pat. And this is not something, this is not a beginner exercise. This is something I do a lot of. So if I'm learning a tune, and there's a section outlining an area. That was very specific. <laughs> Let's take, I got rhythm. 1625, 1625. It's just concert B flat, a stretch there. I will put on a vamp of concert B flat and play an idea, then just over that one key area, start to develop and practice it and oh, noodle around great. with it. So I'm not yeah. worrying about getting to the bridge. I'm not worrying about getting to the next key area where it adds in that, you know, flat seven little bit. However, you want to think about that. I just put on one chord or one key area that outlines essentially one chord yeah. and I will play a starting idea and then practice developing it to go different places. Oh, that's great. And you'll find you have to practice ending the phrases because a lot of people uh. like start swelling out and then it kind of peters out. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to add a nice closure. Bebop, do that. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So you got to work on that. So, so just, just do one chord or yes. one little key area at one a time key area. and work out some interesting ideas. And, and that's cool. where I find the greatest, um, for me as a classical musician, trying to outline 30 chords flying by. Ooh, right. It's all your brain can do to just, you know, navigate the chords. Yeah. But largely there's certain, just there's only a handful of key areas within those. Yeah. So you do have to practice going from one key area to the next. But at the same time, I don't think we spend near enough time just improvising in one key area. And then if you take your time in there, you can really hear how each of the 12 tones sounds. Yeah. And all 12 tones will take sound time. great over yeah. any chord. Depending on how you use it's them. It's all about the context. Yeah. And I find you have time and brain space to learn those contexts by just putting on one chord, one key area, and playing on that vamp. Yeah. And then, Pat, um, take some ideas, some scaffolding, and then practice, isolated, improvising on that idea. Yeah. And I do that a lot. You know what this makes me think of? There's a friend of mine who's a percussionist, very well-known Swedish percussionist by the name of Anders Ostrand. And the way he practices his scales is he'll just improvise in like a major scale and just come up. He's a jazz player. Okay. Well, he's a classical player too, but he's a jazz player, does a lot of um, vibraphone okay. work. And so he'll just say, okay, I'm going to just practice in D major. And he'll just like practice in D major, just make stuff up. 
only using the notes of D major. And I sometimes do that when I get bored with my scales. I just like, okay, D major. I'm just going to play in D major. And you know, I play in this band with with uh, Brian Lampkin and Mark Engelbretson, this kind of poetry-based band. And a lot of the music requires me to just improvise over some scale or something like that. And so it's a really fun way to practice, just to just to use one scale or one chord like that. Yes. Very cool. Uh, to even take that even further, then I would start with just, and that's called um, just playing diatonically, diatonicism, yes. where yeah. you just play the notes in the key signature, the key area. Yeah. And what's interesting, if you look at the 1625, 1625 over I Got Rhythm, it's all just B flat. Right. Um, because the chords are built on a major right. scale. Right. Um, so then I would practice diatonically. Right. Just those notes and build melody. If you can't build a diatonic melody, don't start messing with surround tones. Right. You know, don't start messing with the fancy you don't need stuff. All the chromatics. Can you yeah, build the yeah. scaffolding? And then one at a time, start adding in a passing tone. Yeah. So then you might just add the, you know, the 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 flat fifth or you, or yeah. you know the flat sixth or different passing tones. Experiment yeah, with just the flat seventh over the major chord. Even something like B flat C D and throw in the C sharp on the way to the D. Even mm-hmm. right. Exactly. So cool. start to experiment with one at a time and then add more, add more. And then before you know it, all 12 work. Yeah. Yeah. Or not all the time when I knew <laughs> they should. And correction, that was Lorenzo that asked that question. Lorenzo. Not okay. Pat. Pat has a great question. Okay. So, so sorry, Lorenzo. That was your question. I misattributed it to Pat. Um, Pat asks, to what extent do you think jazz is an acquired taste? Like red wine or coffee? Do we learn to like it or is it just good? Oh, <laughs> so Pat's question will take five episodes. Yeah, because uh, that's a great question. <laughs> that is a great the question. Same goes for classical Ooh. music. Now you got well, in trouble yeah. because you kind of laid down. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't think that. I'm trying to think if you if you think about like world music, I mean, any kind of music is kind of an acquired taste, don't you think? Yeah, there's a there's a cultural there's upbringing. A cultural, yeah, and whatever you heard when you were a kid or whatever you've been exposed to mm-hmm. over the course of your lifetime. So when I was in the Vienna Saxophone Quartet, we were in South Africa one time, and we played some music by Mozart okay. um, at a school because we were paid to go play Austrian music all around the world. So, you know, we had some saxophone quartet. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> arrangements of Mozart. You know, and they clapped, you know, appreciatively because they're very nice kids and very nice people. But then we played a piece by Yanis Zanakis, mm-hmm. which is a really out there piece. And they liked that better because f- somehow they, I mean, we always think of Mozart being this easy listening music and Zanakis being really difficult. But coming from their background and what they're used to hearing, the Zanakis was a little closer to their music than Mozart was. So I think it's all kind of relative in a way. Huh. Because so, of just like the... So those kids grew up drinking espresso is what you're, <laughs> what you're saying. Maybe. But do you see what I mean? Like It's like kind of... I don't know that, that we can answer that question fairly because who knows? I mean, depends on where you're coming from and what you're used to. For a lot of people, jazz is just too chaotic. And they don't like it. And for a lot of people, classical music's just too darn boring and they don't like it. I mean, you know, not everything is for everybody. And yeah. You know, that's why, you know, when I when I talk to people about building up a repertoire for them to play using the saxophone, I always tell them first to figure out what music they love to listen to and what music do they want to play. Cause you don't, I mean, you're probably gonna play classical music, you're probably gonna play jazz, especially if you live in this kind of Western world, but you might not, you might do, I mean, there's guys over in India playing, you know, the traditional Indian music on the saxophone. Oh, it sounds so and, cool, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the guy's name, who's super who famous, you know, I'm, I'm yes, gonna have to look so up his cool. name. Yeah, doing all this microtonal stuff, that's not everybody's cup of tea, yeah. but it's great music and it's so honest to, to his culture and, and where he's coming from. Anyway, so you're you're gonna have to answer that question. I love <laughs> jazz personally. I love it. I think it's great. Right, but, but you yeah. know, sometimes when it's really frenetic, I can't listen to it because it's just you know it's too stressful. But that kind of depends on my mood, and and there's a lot of classical music and contemporary music I also can't listen to, right? Because it's a little bit too frenetic or stressful. I think yeah, there's I think some acquired taste, but I think there can be limits, and I don't. Here's what I hate. 
when jazz gatekeepers or academic classical composers will say, if you don't like it, you just don't get it. You need to work oh, harder yeah, to understand well, no, it. Oh, okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, but it's common. <laughs> I know. I but... just, I'm not going to, I literally can't name any names because like you, I get a lot of friends on yeah, Facebook. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know who they are, but they yeah. friend me and then I have to watch them complain. <laughs> but I saw someone complain about, I guess they had composed a piece and they got really negative feedback from a competition. And that was very unprofessional. They didn't understand my music. And I thought, this was a composer well, complaining on Facebook. And I thought, well, first of all, don't enter a competition, ding dong, if you can't take criticism. If you right. just want praise, call your mom. <laughs> Secondly, insinuating that someone, if someone doesn't like it, they don't understand it is... Uh, Ain't, I'm not going to play that game. Well, That's ridiculous. They may not understand it, but maybe you have to take a look at your music and see why it's so hard to understand. Your music's bad, could, Jared. Your music's bad. Could you do something? There's no to- acquired taste, Jared. Your music is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. It, the person's name wasn't, oh, I hope it wasn't Jared. That'd be really funny. Jared is my default, like, yeah, you know, know. go in the car, Jared. Um, which I know a couple Jareds, and it's not referencing any Jared I know. It just seems, seems like I'd be a Jared. <laughs> But in the jazz Sorry, world, Jared. it's that like, oh, yeah, you've got to get hip to X, Y, or Z. And yeah. um, the risk of alienating, well, I'm not going to. But there's a certain <laughs> sound happening now with the tender players in New York. They all kind of sound very similar to me. They're playing all the same kind of um, anxious noodling, as I think my one of my students, Brian, calls it. And it's not that I don't understand it or that I haven't listened to it long enough. It's just, it's... It's not something that my ear latches onto. So I hear other people like, "Oh, I just don't, I don't like it." Yeah. And someone I have heard before, like, "Well, you just gotta, you really gotta understand." Like, no, you don't. No, you don't have to understand it. Like, it, yeah. And the people who like that, well, that's great. Sure, that's I fine. Know. I mean, it's super. Yeah. Like, like as I mean, if as, you like to listen to Zanakis's music, that's great. If you don't, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, we don't. In the words of Sue Fancher, we don't all have to wear purple shoes. Right. So I think there can be some acquired taste. I didn't love. Bebop, the classic Bebop, when I first started hearing it, it grew on me to the point now. Remember when I first heard um, Charlie Parker when I was in high school, I was like, what? I was not yeah. a cool kid. See, now that's the word of caution, right? You can't right. just dismiss something because it, it could be that right. you need some familiarity, some more, some familiarity to like it, and, and some, you might some be bridges. surprised. So there yeah. are acquired tastes, but yeah. at the same time, I hate people using it as gatekeeping. Well, if you don't uh, like it, you don't understand it. Yeah, I got gotcha. That drives me nuts. In the classical yeah. world, there's there's plenty there's of that. Plenty as, of that as there's plenty of that, too. The jazz. Sure, yeah. So I think there's a little bit of acquired taste. That being said, I'm a heathen. Musically, yeah, and I actually got in trouble <laughs> back in nineteen, no twenty. It doesn't matter the year. I was just starting my doctorate first year, and your husband was actually on a panel. Oh dear! At UNCG, it was like Southeastern Composers League, okay, conference or whatever. And he asked me to be um, one of the performer perspectives. Okay, and so it was a bunch of academic composers and asking like, Wally, Wally, what do you look for when you when you commission a work or when you choose music? Right. And I said. Well, does it feel good and do I enjoy listening to it? And you would have thought I just basically said, like, <laughs> I murder chipmunks for fun. The way the composers looked at me, the vehemence I got. How dare you want to actually enjoy the music? Oh, and they said, they said, well, I mean, but you want to grow, right? And I was like, you know, I'm at the point in my career where, like, if it doesn't feel good under my fingers and I, I, as a performer, there's nothing less comfortable to me than playing and I can sense the audience zoning out. Or not liking it. Yeah. I don't like being in that situation. Yeah. And I don't feel any obligation to composers. Because I'm not married to one like Sue Fancher. <laughs> so if I don't think the music is going to connect with the general audience, I err on the side of, I don't I do not do it. Well, I'm really lucky that I like Mark's music. That you are. Yeah. If I was married to somebody whose music, I don't think I would marry somebody whose music I didn't like. I'd be stuck playing all this stuff I hated. Oh, that God. would be terrible. That would be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta be oh careful. Boy. I once served I on the faculty. We're gonna be in so much one of the faculty, compo- I was teaching in a college, and one of the faculty was like, "Oh, Wally, I need to write you a piece." I was like, "Oh, cool." Then I went home, and looked up their music. I was like, "Oh, please don't write oh. me a piece." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh no, how do I get out of this?" <laughs> My wife's pregnant. I'll use that. <laughs> um, oh dear. There was a point in there somewhere. I don't know. I've already lost the train of thought. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> playing music, like yeah, there are some acquired tastes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that's fine. But at the same time, oh, the heathenism. So I'm at the point now where I listen to a ton of just 1950s West Coast jazz. It's not hard to get. You could say it's like drinking, uh, it's a diet of lemonade and cupcakes. I'm fine with that. You know, there are a whole bunch of string players in this world who play a lot of music that was written a long time ago, and nobody faults them for that. So I think it should be okay for us to not have to play the newest piece. Yeah. (laughs) I think 
as a jazz musician, I've got, even by the guys that make my my mouthpiece, they're like, you know, while you kind of play like, you know, a little bit older style, you know, and maybe we get some blend in my mouthpiece that plays a little bit more modern. I was like, you know, I don't, I, the, the music is barely 100 years old. Right. And like, I don't feel that we always have to be moving forward. And so for my money, I'm not big into a lot of the newer jazz. I think the peak of jazz and classical was like the early 1960s. <laughs> and I'm fine. I think we don't have to reinvent the wheel and completely change everything and everything doesn't have well, to be so innovative. Well, maybe we don't all have to do that. So somebody's doing that and that's great. And if you were yeah. into that, that's, that's Yeah, awesome. but when the majority and then the super majority start all trying to push the envelopes to keep up with the Joneses as creating uh, new yeah, sounds, say, yeah. we become less and less of a popular art form because we're becoming more and more of an acquired taste and yeah. then beating the audiences over the head. This is art, like it. And then yeah. when you open up Spotify, you got to scroll down real far to get the classical <laughs> and jazz. But let's keep being super esoteric and wonder why. No, why aren't you coming to my concerts? You know, I don't know. Oh, Maybe because your tritone subs have tritone subs and it's getting hard <laughs> to pay attention. So I'm going to put on some Bud Shanker's Paul Desmond and enjoy myself. Life is short. Phil Woods. This sounds good now. Yeah. I had a, uh, I had a roommate named Vin- This is a long answer to your question. Uh, but I had a roommate named Vinny who played guitar in a ska band I was in. Don't laugh. Um, and he didn't believe in acquired tastes. And so like, I remember making a pasta dish. And it's like, oh, I don't like this or this. It's like onions and peppers. He's like, yeah, I could just call them floaties. I was like, floaties? And he's like, yeah, the extra stuff that's in the sauce that I don't like. And oh, like, geez. He was a brilliant guy. And it's like, well, Vinny is like, yeah, it's like an acquired taste. And he didn't drink coffee. He didn't drink alcohol. And he, he would literally drink Kool-Aid and, and like, <laughs> and I would kind of make fun of him. He's like, yeah, but Wally, but this tastes good now. <laughs> and I thought, it's the Dow of Vinny. Like, All that, right. Like, he was living his life and loving it. And from his perspective, that tasted good now. Well, you know, the whole popularity argument, you know, it's, it's tricky. And there's like good arguments on all sides of these are there these, no? Yes, there are. All right. Because if you think about, you know, think about McDonald's and they sell so much food. Is it great food? Well, no, but you it's reliable. Oh, right. Now we're going to get sued by McDonald's. <laughs> Thanks, Sue. I mean. Thanks hey, for the McLaw suit. I've been to McDonald's many times in my life. It's reliable. I go there because I know what I'm going to get. Uh-huh. And it's okay. I'm in the car driving home from something. I'm starving. And I'm like, you know that... That Big Mac is actually pretty good, or the quarter pounder with cheese, and it's going to come with those nice hot fries, mm-hmm. and I'm going to get a milkshake, and I know what it's going to be. It's not going to be too expensive. I mean, that's a great formula. Unless you're in Switzerland. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, right? The, the name of the McDonald's. Yeah. It's a great formula for popularity, right? Something that's predictable and likable. Yeah, and, way to cover up your McSlander. Um, uh, <laughs> or, uh, did, I, did I fix it? Because <laughs> it's not written, it's not McLiable, it's McSlander. You did fix it. I know what you mean. And actually, but you know what I mean? So we wife, have to be careful with yeah. art, too. We don't want to just, okay, we only want to do stuff that's going to sell a lot, because that could well, be... It's selling, but like that's the thing. Like I just happen to like that stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like when people are like, oh, Paul Desmond, but you know, it is really avant-garde. Like, nope, Desmond's fine for me. <laughs> maybe I understand. Maybe that's why yeah, I camp I out for the McRib. Well, there's a lot of food I don't like too. So. That's true. So there, we totally answered that. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> you opened a can of worms with that one. Uh, was that Pat? So it was Pat. Oh, one Pat. more can of, can of worms to get you in trouble before oh, we go. No. Bruce Rockwell. What? <laughs> But yeah, this um, is so stressful, Wally. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to catch up on questions. I know we're way behind. Okay. okay. Yeah. Here's what I'm, cor- I'm curious about. Uh, this is Bruce Rockwell. <laughs> Here is what I'm curious about that I don't think you have covered. I think we might have, but I don't know. And we'll maybe it's just it a morbid curiosity, but it might be useful for some folks. I'd like to know what are the realities of teaching saxophone in academia? Like how many jobs come up in a year? How many applicants per job? What is the oh, teaching geez. demands are like? Performance <laughs> expectations, the difference between adjunct to tenured. What is the academic oh culture like gosh. in jazz? So, what are the realities of a career in classical saxophone performance? Oh, this is—he's got topics for the next. Bruce, five. are you trying to keep our therapists well employed? <laughs> the next five episodes are yeah. taken care of. So let's Thank just take you, one point. What are the okay. realities of the academic job market? And here's um. Whoa. So I just gave a talk to the Eastern Music Festival. Good. Excuse me while I pick up that name I just dropped. Yeah. Um, so the very prestigious Eastern Music Festival asked me to give a career talk. Great. Um, to young musicians about career options. And I was joking saying that um, 
the percentage of people that go to performance degree versus openings and, and these were largely orchestral musicians. Okay. And so I, you know, told them like how I once got in trouble by telling my students, raise your hand if you know anyone that's graduated from this university that has a full-time orchestra job. No one can raise their hand because they haven't. In the 10 years that I've been at the university, not right. one single person had gotten a full-time orchestra job. Right. And so I got in trouble until I said, well, prove me wrong. And then my director laughed and said, all right, I just had to fork the complaint from the faculty member that you made mad. I was like, well, the truth hurts. Right. Sorry, place more of your students in full-time orchestras or shut up was my... Well, and it's not necessarily the the fault of the teacher or the... It's just the numbers. Yeah. I mean, mm, okay. there are not very many of these jobs. No, and a lot of the <laughs> teachers have never landed that job. Yet. They, right. they put students into debt to learn to take those jobs. So I'm out of academia, so I can say these things quite honestly. Sue is not... She's looking very displeased with no, me. I'm Sue not. is looking very <laughs> concerned that... This is Wally's opinion only. This does not express the no, opinions there, of Sue Fancher. There are, there are so few jobs. I mean, I'm trying to think of any uh, full-time saxophone professorships that got advertised this year, there might have been one. Yeah. And how many people do you think would, would apply for that? Oh, 200? God, at least 200. Yeah. And at least 150 of them, probably all 200, to be honest, could do the job just fine. At least 150 of them have doctorates in hand with teaching experience. Right. Yeah. So that was the joke and I was talking probably that, not yeah. in, like, a urban area where there are many playing opportunities either. Oh, Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in addition, and and yeah, there's probably... Well, that, that's what I was telling yeah. the kids at the Eastern Music Festival. When there were job openings, if I was that one in 300 that got hired, yeah. uh, my wife was like, we're not moving there. Don't apply for that job. We're not moving right. there. We're not moving to rural... I'm not right. going to insult a state. No, but, of course not. No, and those, those places it. could be great places to live, great places to raise a family, great Maybe. places to live and work. But, but if you're a musician, you need a certain like critical mass of audience people. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, or, or, or access to an airport yeah. so you can get to places if you're going to have a playing career. That's true. Um, so what I was telling the kids at the Eastern Music Festival was that um, the joke, not the joke, it's not, a, it's not funny, but like the kind of funny thing to me was when I taught career development, I just quit. Um, the first as assignment my students would be your five-year plan. Like, what are your career goals? Yeah. And like 80% of the class, why don't you, I want to be a full-time orchestra musician. And if that doesn't work out, I guess I'll just be a college professor. <laughs> and that was oh their gosh. backup. That which was their is, backup. It's which, crazy. It's and even I told harder those kids, to do It's that. like saying, yeah. like, look, I'm going to be a major Hollywood actor, and if that doesn't work out, I guess I'll be an astronaut. I mean, it's... It's almost that unrealistic. Yeah, and it, I hate that because someone gets to be an astronaut, so that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Of course, But we can't yeah. wrap up our entire identity in that. And that's the problem with the DMA, the getting the doctorate, uh, Bruce, is that it doesn't prepare you for much else other than college teaching. Now, you can use that skill set for lots of other things, but sure. the, the job market is a bloodbath, and I think it's unethical. Um, oh, it's rough, yeah. So I, I'm glad I'm not in a teaching position where I teach adults and amateurs, and I'm having the time of my life. Yeah. I have a doctorate in music, but I'm teaching actual physicians to play the saxophone. Yeah. And it is so fulfilling, so interesting, seeing how their brains work and the connections and, oh, yeah. and the reasons why. Um, but if I were in a, in a you teach, uh, I teach at a couple of colleges. Right, yeah. but you don't have doctoral students. I do not. I don't even have master's students. In fact, most of my students are non-music majors, um, music minors, double majors with other right. subjects. Um, and I just, I, I myself was a double major. Right. I was Smart. saxophone and, and math. So, I mean, I, I know people who got performance degrees and they're doing fine, but very few of them actually are college professors. Right. They're and doing I, other things. Right. So I, th I think uh, to kind of get into Bruce's question, I think there's a lot of reasons to study classical saxophone. I think there's a lot of reasons to get yeah. a degree. As long as you go in knowing that like the chances are you're not going to get that full time, you know, right. Tenure. You don't, don't count on it as the way you make your money, but it can be the way you make your joy. Right. And I think you that's know, good as geez, long as you're prepared. Yeah. Um, but yeah, get the blinders off and know that if you want to make a living at this thing, it's tough. And you got to have a lot of luck and a lot of good opportunities and, um, yeah, <laughs> and not need to make a lot of money. But if you really think that you're going to be a college, I mean, I did when I got done, you know, with um, studying in France and then came back and I had a job for a while and I thought I was going to do math and then, you know, started on a grad degree in math and then I moved to Europe and I got some professional work with some saxophone quartets through some unbelievably rare once in a lifetime opportunities. 
Um, so I had a really great time performing. And then I came back to the States and I thought, well, I'll get my doctorate and I'll get a college um, professorship. Because look at this like experience I have commissioning, right. um, playing in concerts all around the world. I had been, you know, had made multiple CD recordings and, you know, I came out of college, got my doctorate, had all of this experience, you know, and I love teaching. You know, it's not like I stick my nose up at teaching. I've always loved teaching and right. I think I'm okay at it. And I did not succeed in getting a full-time college professorship. That's okay. All the people who beat me out for those jobs are great. I don't think it, no, first of all, no one beat you. No one beat. Well, there Ain't was, nobody beat Sue Fisher for a job. <laughs> a committee selected a different candidate. Yes. But it's not a it's not quite the meritocracy as you might think. Well, um, there's probably something to that. But, you know, the people who got those jobs are fantastic. Oh, sure. Sure, so, sure, sure, sure. So, but the just, point the point being that Well, you're so nice. But the point being that there could be 50 people any just, you know, put the names in a hat and draw one out, they'd be, you'd be fine. Yeah. You know, they'd do the job just fine. And that's just how hard this field is to get those jobs. And that's just the reality. That's not I don't see why that's something we should have an argument or a debate about, right? No, no, like, no, 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 no. But no. I mean, not you and me, but people who are like, oh, don't tell people that. It's like, well, why wouldn't you tell people that? I oh, mean, yeah, I have people that are like, you're being overly well, negative. Like, says no, the person with this, the cushy I'm job. Not, yeah. I'm not being negative. No, not those you, are, but I've heard, yeah. But, but yeah, exactly. Those are just the facts, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are, you know, when Mark got the job at UNCG, the full-time tenured track the job in music compo composition, there were 200 applicants for crying out loud. <laughs> oh. He pinches himself every day and feels like he won the lottery. Yeah. He's great. He does a great job. He writes great music. He works his butt off to do a good job by his students, and he's built a fantastic program. But, you know, he there were, like, <laughs> I mean, it's like one in 100. It's actually one in 200. One, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so he got the job, but he could just as likely have not gotten it. And then we would have had a perfectly fine life doing something else. It's okay. Right. You know, you just, you have to just keep on keeping on. <laughs> but just don't go into school and don't take hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with, you know. Now you that, tell me, Sue. No. I know. <laughs> just, I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult. It's complicated. Yeah. But somebody's going to get that job. It's like buying a lottery ticket, right? You're like, well, somebody's going to win. But the difference is that the lottery ticket costs you, what, two bucks? <laughs> that, you just made me really depressed. Thanks a lot, Bruce, for that question. Um, but we're doing fine. Yeah. We're I, doing fine. And actually, I don't regret getting my doctorate. I learned a lot. I made a lot of really good friends. I've paid off the loans now. Well, what's interesting is <laughs> I had you, if you were in a full-time job in rural Iowa, nothing against Iowa. I'm sure it's right. lovely yeah. and it's a square-shaped state that looks just <laughs> super. But had you gotten the job in rural Iowa, you would not have the incredibly interesting performance opportunities that you have being so close to Durham and Raleigh and right. Greensboro. Right. There are, there are advantages to picking yeah. where you want to live. So, Bruce, yeah. I would say that, like, yes, the job market, but the job market is not just tenure-track college teaching jobs. Right. There's a lot you can do with the saxophone degree. Oh, yeah. Um, and I got to say, when the pandemic hit, I realized how many people want to learn the saxophone. Because as Sue and I are know, because we're at the vanguard, of starting the second saxophone craze. Yes. Um, more people are wanting to play the saxophone. And if you, I think we have to look at the job beyond just teaching more saxophones to be college professors. Yeah. There's so many people that want to learn the saxophone. Let's teach people to play the saxophone yeah. well so and have good music In that respect, yeah. if we look at the job market for classical saxophones as people that just want to teach college, yeah, it's a bloodbath. If you look at it as my job, and it literally is my job to teach anyone who wants to play the saxophone the saxophone, yeah. I, I'm doing fine, and I'm having the time of my life. Yeah. Um, I'm playing music that I love. I'm teaching people that I love being around and interacting yeah. with. How cool so is that? So in that respect, and there's, I can't even begin to to service a fraction of the job mar of the 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 market that needs this. Yeah. So I'm I'm completely booked up, fold up, and we need more. Frankly, yeah. doing that. So I I guess to I know what he was good. I, yeah. Bruce obviously has some experience in academia in the music yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say broaden it up, and in a sense, we don't need more college saxophone professors. We need more great saxophonists and saxophone teachers. Yeah, there are just tens and tens and tens of thousands of great saxophonists looking to learn the art form. Lots and lots of saxophonists have made their living with a private studio. 
Oh, yeah. And you can do really well with that. You can do incredibly well, and it's incredibly fulfilling, too. Yeah. Um, and have recitals with those kids at the end of each yeah. semester, and boy, so there are college, so many lives. college saxophone majors that listen to this, probably yeah. more than I feel comfortable with if I thought about it. Um, but you've got to think beyond just the greatest value to you is not at a college. It's the thousands and thousands, literally tens of thousands. I think there was over 150,000 saxophones sold in North America last year. I mean, like the numbers are staggering. The number yeah, of people playing the saxophone. Just last year. Right. Yeah. You cannot look at your job as I'm going to be a college saxophone professor. You were sharing and playing an art form and there's so much opportunity. But we get caught in the ego thing of like, well, these are the best jobs and our industry leaders do this. I want to do this too. I understand. Sure, uh, of work, course. Work that out with your therapist. But <laughs> I sure Okay, did. well, yeah, I will. No, I mean, it's like... <laughs> but I know what you're saying. You're, yeah, you're totally. groomed in college to do yeah. this thing, but then when you get out, there's this whole world of people that would get their left leg to have your knowledge. Yeah. And they're doctors and dentists and lawyers. Yeah. And, and, and what they are happy to pay for that education... Um, is is not a hardship for these people, right? And if you're good at what you're doing, you will be rewarded for it. Yeah. You just have to look at your the market is not just being college teaching, right? And frankly, it's a lot of fun getting outside of college. It is, yeah. And play, you know, go out and go out and play and find music you like, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So thanks a lot for uh, <laughs> the question, Bruce. It's a really great question, Bruce. Yeah, thanks a lot, Actually, Bruce. All of those are. No, really. No, they really are good questions. <laughs> they're, they're all good questions. We'll have yeah. to tackle some more of those. Well, well, well let's, Another time. let's limit career talks to one a year. <laughs> this time next year when there's 500 applicants per college teaching job. Oh. And then we'll talk about the enrollment cliff. Oh, yeah, because there were so Yeah, so if you're in grad school oh, right now, uh, do not Google enrollment cliff. Uh, no. Don't, don't look at that because no. things are going to get bad soon. So great question. Now. Yep. Next week. Okay, what's up, Will Wally? you talk us through a little bit about more about Enveloped by Jenny Watson, our piece? Next week, yes. Next week. And yeah. so everyone, go download it, start working on it, yeah, start playing on it. Yeah, get to work on it. And I'm going to try to record it late next week. So, you know, if you want to beat me to it, that's cool. No, but it's not cool. No, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, this is the beautiful the open. It's for everyone. <laughs> if you want to, oh, how about this? That if you are so working fun. on Enveloped and you want to just post part of it, oh, yeah. Um, tag us on social media. Yeah, um, just do it. And well, yeah, tag us on. This on, isn't owned by us. No, yeah. tag us on Instagram or or Facebook, and then we'll even tag in Jenny Watson and get you some feedback. There you go. And yeah, uh, actually, we could ask her some questions. If there, if you have any questions about the piece, yeah. ask us. Ask her. It's yeah. so beautiful. It's I, so fun to be able to collaborate like this. I may or may not have pulled out my classical mouthpiece recently. <gasps> Wally, Whisper, I know. I know. Well, if I wasn't so chicken of being judged, I would have recorded it already. But I didn't want to make any mistakes, Wally. <laughs> 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 that would render me mute. <laughs> All right. We will see you, everybody, next week. Okay. Um, start working on Envelope by Jenny Watson. Have and a great then, week. Uh, have a great week, everyone. Practice. Go practice. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>